Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, but it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. 
The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray as we open God's word together. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you today for your presence with your people and for the gift of your word to us. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. While we return this morning to uh, the book of Exodus, as we continue uh, considering what God is doing through Moses, and last week, you'll recall, we found Moses at the burning bush and his encounter with the triune God there, and the Lord revealed something of the awesome mystery of his name, Yahweh, to Moses, but he also showed him that because of God's presence with his people enslaved in Egypt, they were not consumed. So he sees the bush, it's burning, it isn't consumed, the people of God are in Egypt, but they are not consumed either. And today what we're going to do is think a little bit more about Moses' calling, the calling that God had on his life, what God was requiring of him, and also the ultimate goal that was in view in the calling of Moses, sending him back to Egypt, which was about the liberation, really, of his people, that God's people might be liberated to honor and worship and serve God in the earth. So this is not simply about God's personal dealings with Moses, but it is about what God is wanting to do in terms of his kingdom in the earth. So we're going to consider the passage under uh, these headings. First, three signs. Second, two objections. And then finally, freedom for the people of God. Three signs, two objections, and freedom for the people of God. So firstly, three signs. Now, up to this point, Moses' actions have basically been self-motivated. He's not a man without faith, but his actions have been largely self-motivated. He rose up against uh, Egypt, he rose up against the Egyptian, and slew him in his own strength. Then he fled from Pharaoh to save himself. So he rose up in his own strength, he flees from Pharaoh to save himself. He's now married. He's tending the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. He's making a living for himself. Now, the urge to help his people is still with Moses. That wouldn't have gone anywhere. 
But until this conversation at the burning bush, there was no solution to that problem in sight. And you know how sometimes we're facing situations, you're facing a situation where there's no solution in sight. You've got something in your heart to do. There's something that you believe the Lord wants to do with you, through you, but there's no solution in sight till this conversation comes for Moses at the burning bush. And God has been teaching him throughout this time to wait. That's a very difficult exercise. I'm not a patient person. Don't know what you're like. Waiting is a very difficult thing to do. In this time in the wilderness, Moses' own strength is actually being broken as he's learning reliance upon the Lord. And it's not an easy thing to go through the breaking of our own strength. We want to get things done, carry our purposes forward. God very often has to break our own strength so that we will rely upon God. So what Moses knows at this point is that he is being sent to Pharaoh. We saw that in uh, last week in chapter 3, verse 10. But he's no idea how God is going to work this deliverance beyond the fact that God himself will do miracles. He knows that. He knows that God will do miracles, but he doesn't know much else. And naturally, Moses has all kinds of questions. He's got all kinds of doubts. He's got all kinds of fears. And when you read what God is doing here, who, who wouldn't? All kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts, all kinds of fears. Now, it's interesting, and we're going to come back to this objection in a moment, that his, his primary concern actually is not the Egyptians. I don't know whether you noticed that. You would think that the primary concern out of the gate for Moses would be Pharaoh, the power of Egypt, the Egyptians, but it's not. It's the cynicism of his own people. The cynicism of his own people. It's actually a common feature of Scripture and of church history that frequently those who claim to be God's people are most resistant to God's prophets and God's messengers. You see this with Christ. You see this with the apostles. I think we're seeing an element of that in our own time. Frequently, it's the stubbornness and rebellion of God's own people. And that was what Moses was fundamentally most afraid of. The cynicism of those who said they were the people of God. So God has to prepare Moses for what lies ahead He needs to confirm his calling. He needs to meet these concerns that Moses has. And so he gives him, he offers him three signs, two of which he performs right in front of him, and which will be done before the Israelites by Aaron a bit later, the end of the chapter, and then later in front of the Egyptians. What were these three signs then? Well, the first one was to do with the rod, what God did with the rod or the staff, Second, the leprous white hand, and then the Nile water becoming blood. So two of these signs he does right in front of Moses. One happens later. Now, to understand the significance of these signs, 
it's important to understand something quickly about the religious faith of Egypt. We're all familiar with the pyramids. At least I hope you all are. The pyramids of Egypt, the great pyramids of Egypt. They're a marvel. They're, in some respects, a great mystery. If you go on to Netflix or whatever, you can find endless documentaries about the pyramids, some more plausible than others. I'm less convinced about the aliens building them, for example. But they were a reminder of the faith of Egypt because of their durable permanence. They're still with us. The durable permanence of the pyramid and its shape, the the triangle. This reveals something of a religious view of their culture, that they felt that their culture was aligned with the essential structure of all being. And as such, it would be a permanent order, the Egyptian order. They thought that the universe was static, like geometry. It was a world, a realm without change. So one uh, commentator has actually noted here, when I quote, in challenging Egypt's faith, God struck at the world of nature. Suddenly, nature became to the Egyptian mind perverse and undependable. This fact struck at the foundations of Egyptian life and religion. Egypt's certainties became uncertainties. So when you begin to reflect on some of the signs that God is doing, think about the religious faith of Egypt as one of certainty, permanence, durability. First, the the rod incident or the staff. Moses is told, take that rod that's in your hand, throw it on the ground, and when he does, it becomes a snake, a serpent. When he's instructed to pick it up again, it returns to a dry piece of wood, to a staff, a rod. Now, in Scripture, the rod is a symbol of power and authority. This is why Moses is required and reminded by God, take the staff with you. You know, maybe I shouldn't be, but sometimes I'm reminded of that scene in The Lord of the Rings where uh, Gandalf is going in front of uh, King Theoden, um, and he's, they've forgotten to take his staff. But the staff is a symbol of power and authority in Scripture. The shepherd's staff in Scripture is a sign, ultimately, of Christ's total authority over the nations. Think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is quoted again in Revelation 2, 27. It's a symbol of Christ's authority over the nation. So the rod in Moses' hand is a type of divine power, which in the good shepherd's hand is, of course, one of tenderness and care. It's the staff of a shepherd. And Moses has been a shepherd. And he is being called to shepherd Israel. But power and authority wielded outside of the hand and rule of God changes character and becomes a serpent. Power and authority wielded outside the hand and rule of God changes character and becomes a serpent. It's diabolic. 
Scripture declares, can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? Psalm 94.20. Now, the snake had an important role in Egyptian mythology. It had a very prominent place. Right on the front of Pharaoh's crown, there was a serpent. It set forth Pharaoh's power to kill. And the snake in this form was a symbol, actually, of the goddess Wadjet. Like a serpent, Pharaoh was biting and killing the people of God. Soon he was going to be turned into a dry stick. The godless state thus becomes a leviathan, a serpent opposed to God. But when Moses picks it up again, he takes it in his hand. As the servant of God, it returns to being a shepherd's staff. Power and authority in the hands of God and His servants is like a shepherd's staff. Outside the hand of God, it becomes serpentine. And think about Psalm 2, where Christ's rod rules and indeed shatters and breaks the nations. And in our own time, the state is increasingly like a serpent exercising authority in opposition to God's people. When it steps outside of its role under God, it becomes serpentine. Then there's the second sign. Moses is told, put your hand inside your cloak. So he puts his hand inside the cloak, and when he removes it, it's, it's white, it's leprous, it's diseased. That must have been a bit of a shock. Why doesn't Hollywood actually actually do the Bible stories. They'd be way better than their ridiculous imitations of them. Think about that. He puts his hand in his cloak. He removes it. It's leprous and it's diseased. When he puts it back in at God's command and takes it out again, it's restored whole. Now, in Scripture, leprosy is a symbol of sin and defilement. Leprosy separated people from the community. You needed to be cleansed. Jesus, of course, cleanses lepers throughout his ministry. Diseased and unclean was actually how Pharaoh was soon to be perceived by his own people. But it's actually only God who, by his grace, can cleanse us, make us a new creation, transform us. Even hard-hearted Israel was going to be made to hear and given a new heart by God. And then there's the third sign, the Nile water becoming blood. This is the one sign that's not performed right in front of Moses. It was later by Aaron in front of the people of Israel. And finally, of course, on a grand scale, it's performed in front of Pharaoh. Now, this obviously has reference to the death of the Hebrew infants, the casting of the Hebrew infants into the Nile, the infanticide of Egypt. In Egyptian thought, the Nile was a god. It was a god. It was worshipped. 
while the God of the Nile was going to become putrid and loathsome, being turned to blood. God had not forgotten the infants drowned in Egypt. The infanticide that was ordered by Pharaoh. You know, he hasn't forgotten all the murderous abortions performed in the last 70 years in Canada and the West either. You think God's forgotten about that? His judgment doesn't fail. Do you want to understand why we're facing such troubles as a culture today? Do we need to look much further than all the abortions and the infanticide of our culture? God is not mocked. People's professed unbelief in divine judgment in history is irrelevant to God's vengeance. Irrelevant. These are the signs and symbols Moses is given to assure him of his calling, that God is with him, and that he has the power, by God's grace, to accomplish the work. Pretty convincing. But Moses has two objections. So let's come to consider the two objections. Moses has all the empirical evidence now that he could ever want to trust and obey. He's got all the evidence he could need. God's almighty power has been manifest in front of him, first in the burning bush, then in these signs. Now remember, God is not bound by His laws for creation. God is not bound by His laws for creation. Those laws express His will. What we call natural laws, even in the sciences, are simply God's will for creation. That's why the world functions the way it does. Christ's powerful Word holds all things together, remember. That's the teaching of the New Testament. Signs or miracles are signs or miracles because God is doing something different from His ordinary way of working. Sometimes I think we have a perspective on miracles as though the the universe is some sort of mechanical clock wound up at the beginning by God, running in terms of its own laws, and then God occasionally gets a, gets a divine wrench, puts it in the cogs, fiddles around, and then takes the wrench out again. That's not how it works. The world doesn't work in terms of its own internal law. And this is why God's manifest judgments can be seen in history. It's why God can prophesy. It's why we see miracles in Scripture. Lepers are not usually cleansed instantly, are they? The blind do not spontaneously see in the day-to-day. Water is not transformed ordinarily to blood or to wine in the twinkling of an eye. Dead men do not ordinarily walk out of their graves. That is the power of the word of God, the Word who made all things.
So Moses' issues right now are not intellectual. He's got no ground to question God's word or God's power. Nonetheless, Moses makes excuses. Despite the signs, Moses makes excuses. The issue was faith, not evidence. And that's actually why evidentialism in Christian apologetics is a failure. It's not that we can't ever talk to people about evidences. We can and we should. But the power of God is not simply in evidences. The Apostle Paul is actually clear in Romans 1 that the challenge for unbelievers is not a lack of evidence of God's divine power. It's that they hold down or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We make excuses. The unbeliever makes excuses. Moses made excuses. What's his first objection? Well, from the time that he'd risen up to kill the Egyptian, Moses' self-confidence had been slowly shattered. And maybe your self-confidence right now is pretty broken down in your own life with the challenges you may be facing and all the challenges facing our culture. But people whose hearts are transformed by the Spirit of God, who are ready to walk in His grace and His power, can be used anyway for God's victorious purposes. In fact, God takes broken people and nations, and then He uses them. God was going to use Israel, but there was no more broken or shattered nation than Israel at that time. God had given Moses these signs because his first objection had been, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me? It's a natural question. For a person to believe they have something important and valuable to say to a rebellious people or culture, to a rebellious generation, requires and takes courage and faith. And it comes naturally to no one. It comes naturally to nobody. You may be constitutionally a more positive person, but it doesn't come naturally to anybody to confront a rebellious people, a rebellious culture with the Word of God. The first thing we ask ourselves when God calls us to speak for Him is, why would anybody listen to our lonely, isolated voice? We're just a marginalized, increasingly oppressed special interest group. These opinions don't really matter that much to the culture. Even Isaiah said, who has believed our report? Speaking to people, even in the church who seem determined to ignore God's law word and tolerate injustice, can feel hopeless and depressing. And in his leadership of Israel, you see Moses in multiple moments of depression. 
In fact, I don't think you can find any servant of the Lord in Scripture who doesn't encounter profound depression, speaking out and speaking to their generation, the people of God, their own culture. So if you're feeling a bit discouraged, you're in good company. You're in good company. Here, though, God graciously gives Moses signs so that he can go in boldness. And God has given us every sign in Christ, the witness of Scripture, the testimony of the Holy Spirit to speak His truth with boldness and obey our calling. So we don't really have any excuses. His second objection is, I'm not eloquent. My mouth and my tongue, they're slow. Well, this is a familiar one. Basically, Moses is saying, I'm not suitable and equipped to be your instrument, Lord. I'm not a quick thinker. I'm not a good speaker. Maybe he's been, you know, away from Egypt so long that his use of the language is getting a bit rusty as well. He's not as fluent. Who knows? But whatever it is, he doubts his suitability for the task. And we're all prone to this in what we're called to before, as Christians, before the Lord, and whatever God is calling us to do when, we're, when He calls us to speak out and speak up. Someone else would serve God better, Lord. Just ask somebody else. It makes more sense. Do you feel like giving the Lord advice like that? Ask somebody else. I'm tired. No, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not equipped for this, Lord. Get somebody else to do it. There's other people with more gifts and better gifts than I've got. Find somebody else. It makes more sense. You want to get your, this job done? I'm, I'm telling you, use somebody else. How often is this our answer when God calls us to do something? Well, the answer God gives is pretty shattering, really. Shatters every feeble excuse. Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Remember when I was first called to ministry in my early 20s? I may have told this story before, so if you've heard it before, forgive me. I was about to go on my first major speaking event to Scotland. And uh, I woke up one morning, I was 21 or 22, and I had Bell's palsy. This was a few weeks before beginning of what I thought was the beginning of my ministry as an evangelist. I woke up and I couldn't move one side of my face. Took a sip of water or tea or whatever, it just came straight out. It was like I'd had a major stroke. You never know to see me now. And uh, 
I can tell you I was pretty nervous about this. You know, I, I thought uh, my chances of making a good marriage just uh, went south. I couldn't articulate words properly. Elocution. If you can't put your lips together properly and enunciate, you can't speak adequately. Well, I think the Lord was teaching me something, but He was gracious to me, and uh, an evangelist friend of mine sent me a prayer cloth. He said, put this under your pillow for three nights, and on the third morning, you're going to wake up, and it's going to start to be better. And that's exactly what happened. Who made a mouth, your mouth, your ears? Who enables you to see, enables you to hear? In other words, what He commissions us to do, He will empower us to do. What He commissions us to do, He will empower us to fulfill. So, God says, go I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. Literally, I will be with your mouth that you say is no good. I'll be with your mouth. Which bit of, it, which bit of you do you think is no good? I can't do this, Lord. I can't do that. Well, I'll be with you. There's an interesting parallel to this in Jesus' words to the disciples. And I quote now, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's the context. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say in that hour, because you are not speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. So this is for all of us as Christians. This is for all of us as believers. Jesus is clear that the challenge, well, when we try and face or challenge a rebellious culture… To challenge oppression and evil and wickedness is a difficult and dangerous task. Jesus says so. It isn't easy. Consider some of the challenges even of the past 20 months. Jesus actually warns us, beware of men. Beware of men. Even those who do not know Christ, who dare to speak up and resist injustice, like recently this logic professor in the UK, Kathleen Stock, harassed and abused over resisting the trans lobby. They risk their job, their personal safety, just to speak an obvious and plain truth about human nature, that there are men and women. They don't even know the Lord. What about Lord Sumption, former Supreme Court judge, opposed to state overreach, lockdowns, unconstitutional mandates in the last 20 months? He's been attacked mercilessly for speaking common sense. 
This is what happens to those who don't openly profess Christ. How much more for those who proclaim and defend God's law and gospel and call people to repentance, who are calling kings and premiers to account in terms of the Word of God. We've seen evangelical pastors fined and imprisoned for faithfulness in this country in the last two years. Now, humanly speaking, when you look at everything that's going on culturally, think about all the abortions, the expansion of euthanasia and medical assistance in dying, threatening pieces of legislation, Bill C-6, it'll be given a new name, Bill C-36, anti-conversion therapy laws, threatening prison to parents and counselors and pastors, rules and regulations to quash free speech. When you look at all of that, humanly speaking, we're helpless. But not when we are called and sent in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not. Just humanly speaking, we're helpless, but we've got God's staff in our hand. If we go in God's authority, in terms of His Word, we're not helpless. Over the years, I recall many times of having to face my own doubts about my abilities and the intimidation of the culture and its narrative. On one occasion, I remember I was in the United States, and the crowd was actually jeering at me during a debate. I'd barely started, and they were literally jeering up and down this hall. It was supposed to be a university debate. That's the level. But I began to speak about the lordship, the truth of Jesus Christ, and God brought, and it was God, it was absolutely the Lord. One of my colleagues was there, he testified to this. God brought a sudden hush over the whole place. On another occasion, I sat on a platform at a Canadian university in Ottawa. I was waiting to begin a debate with a leading American humanist. We were going to debate the existence of God. I looked out over the crowd. There were hundreds of students there. Many of them were very close to the stage, and I was looking around. I was looking at their faces. Their faces weren't like looking at you now, sort of uh, interest, sympathy, help him, Lord, (laughs) you know. Help him to speed up, Lord, and so on. <laughs> now, when I, when I looked out, I saw anger and malice grinding their teeth. I hadn't even started. I'll never forget how the Lord spoke to me that day. I had my Bible. I was sat at a chair. I had my Bible on the desk in front of me. And I opened my Bible at random And it fell open to these words. I looked down at the page. These are the first words I looked at. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah chapter 1, 8 and 9. Now, that for me was a peculiar moment for me in that situation, but God can do exactly the same for you in whatever circumstance and situation you're in. The focus of both Exodus and Matthew in our Lord's words is on being ready and willing to speak, dependent on God, whatever situation, whatever station in life, and God accepts no excuses. 
Yes, Moses is still in doubt. And he says, please, Lord. God's told him who's made the mouth. Please, Lord, send someone else. Send someone else. Maybe you feel that in your heart today. Well, Moses angered God with that, but God is so gracious, he accommodated to Moses' weakness, and he meets him halfway, and he gives him Aaron as a spokesperson. He's like a a presidential press secretary. Never before has the United States so desperately needed one. (laughs) A press secretary to speak. The content and authority came from Moses. Aaron was the speaker. And this helps us, too, to recognize that sometimes we may have different roles. But together, as we serve the Lord, faithfulness to God is the key requirement. Faithfulness to God, that's the key requirement. So Moses is ordered to take the staff as he represents God as the shepherd of Israel. Look at verse 17. And this arrangement of Moses and Aaron is used in God's providence to have a real impact upon Pharaoh. The way that God sets this up. Listen to what one commentator says about it. He says, Pharaoh was to the Egyptians the great God, and as such he spoke to the people through various officials who were his mouth. The Lord uses Moses' reluctance to establish an ironic parallel which both mocks and challenges Pharaoh. Moses appears before Pharaoh as God's prophet and also instead of God. Like Pharaoh, he has a mouth, Aaron, to speak for him. This was so bold a challenge and one accompanied with supernatural judgments that it restrained Pharaoh's vengeance against Moses and Aaron. You ever wondered why Pharaoh just didn't say, who is this peasant shepherd from out of the wilderness? Execute him. Now, he was intimidated by the parallel that he saw in front of him. He knew God was no buttercup. If you speak up, you will be asked to speak on behalf of others. We're required by God to speak faithfully to our generation, whatever the cost. Jesus says in Luke 21, Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So when Moses later meets Aaron in the wilderness and they kiss one another on the mount of God, the brothers were ready to speak truth to power a wooden staff in their hand, the Word of God in their hearts. That was it. A shepherd's staff in their hand, the Word of God in their hearts. Finally, freedom for the people of God. Let's consider just quickly the goal, the focus of Moses' calling and preparation, which was clearly the progress of the kingdom of God, the progress of the kingdom of God. He's respectfully gone to his father-in-law, Jethro, asked a blessing of peace to return to Egypt, and he gets it. God assures Moses that the people who are trying to kill you, they're dead. And God reminds him at this juncture of the central message he is to give Pharaoh. 
Look at it in the text. All the signs that he's been shown, remember, are to accomplish this end. They're not parlor tricks to show off. They're to accomplish this end. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Let my son go, some translations, that he may worship me. I prefer serve. It indicates the broader sense of the meaning. Let my son go that he may serve me. Since the pharaohs considered themselves sons of God, this was also a direct challenge to their status. And it came with a warning, you'll see there, of judgment on the sons of Egypt if Pharaoh refused. And you remember what the Scripture says of the Lord Jesus? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, the critical thing that we need to notice here is that the kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. The kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. Having this account in front of us, we recognize that the Exodus is a journey of slavery to freedom. In fact, this is the story of the entire gospel. This is the meaning of the gospel. It is the referent of all of Scripture for the message of redemption, the Exodus. Pharaoh is like Satan. Moses, a type of Christ, shepherd leading out his people. When Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, the Scripture says there that they spoke on the mountain about the exodus in the Greek, the exodus he was going to accomplish. So this is the story of the gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. St. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. If the people of Israel were to truly worship God, they needed to be liberated to serve the Lord so that they could receive His covenant law, which we'll get to later in this series, and thereby be a light to the nations concerning God's rule and reign. If they weren't free, they couldn't receive God's constitution, His law. They couldn't be a light to the nations. The gospel of the kingdom needed a home from where to spread. And God was giving the people a land, a place, so that there was a home from where the gospel, the good news, could spread. Moses was being sent to liberate God's people so that there would be both a people and a place. A people and a place for the law and promises to be believed and applied. That couldn't happen under the despotism of Pharaoh in Egypt. This is why wherever the gospel has gone, it has brought liberty and freedom, and where it declines, oppression emerges. When I was preparing this message on Friday, I was reading a passage from Charles Spurgeon on November 5th a special day of celebration in the history of England. We don't do November 5th in Canada. Not quite sure why. It's bonfire night. It's basically become just about fireworks. Most people don't really know what they're celebrating anymore. 
But it's an important day because on this day, November 5th, two great deliverances happened for England. One was a plot that was discovered and foiled to destroy the Houses of Parliament, which at that time was the seat of Western freedom. It was the citadel of evangelical faith in the West. It was also the anniversary of the landing of King William of Orange in 1688. This is a good one for the English-Dutch connection, for those of you who've got that kind of background. This was the year of the glorious, bloodless revolution that was central to the establishment of religious liberty in England and throughout Europe. November 5th. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, "'Our convictions and our love of liberty should make us regard its anniversary,' this is November 5th now, "'with holy gratitude.'" Let our hearts and lips exclaim, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in days of old. You have made this nation the home of the gospel, and when the enemy has risen against her, you have shielded her, end quote. A home for the gospel, and it was, not so much now, but it was. And by God's grace, Canada and the United States were later equally made a home for the gospel, for freedom to flourish and the gospel to spread from them, and it has, to all the nations of the world. The United Kingdom, Scotland per capita, sent more missionaries to the rest of the world than any other nation in the history of Christendom. The United States picked up that mantle. It's actually shifted now to the global south. This privilege we've been squandering, this blessing we've been squandering, if the sons of God, the brothers of Christ, the firstborn son, are bound up by the state, freedom is steadily destroyed for the gospel. If rule and authority ceases to be in the hand of God, the shepherd becomes like a serpent to bite the people of God. This is why exponents of godly faith and liberty in the face of tyranny like the reformer John Knox in his admonition to England were able to develop a theology of resistance that contributed to the preservation and development of liberty right across Europe. We ought to read some of these books sometimes. Read old books. Let the clear sea breeze of the centuries blow through your mind. That's what C.S. Lewis said. It prevents us from having the characteristic blindness of our age. Knox argued that the common people had a right and duty to disobedience if state officials ruled contrary to the Bible, and to do otherwise would be rebellion against God. Has 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 the truth changed since Knox died and said, give me Scotland or I die? What's changed? Has God changed? We worship another God now to Knox to Cromwell, to the Puritans. Along came Samuel Rutherford, Lex Rex, the law is king. Establish the foundations of the rule of law. In it, he argues that the king is not law, but the law is king and must be grounded in the law of God. Christ is the true sovereign whose law word must govern. So Francis Schaeffer pointed this out, and I was looking at this last week, which was, as you remember, Reformation Day, 
A celebration of what God did at the Reformation, Francis Schaeffer said, in almost every place where the Reformation flourished, there was not only religious non-compliance, there was civil disobedience as well, end quote. This is actually why I was personally committed with another pastor to drafting the Reopen Ontario Churches letter and that campaign and then drafting the Niagara Declaration because we have to push back against the serpent in terms of being servants of the shepherd. We have the rod in our hand. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and we must be released to serve the Lord. Let my son go that he might worship me. Let my son go that he might serve me. The gospel, friends, involves a people and a place. We have to carry the message to all nations, and to obey God fully and serve His kingdom requires freedoms to do so. And God knew that the people of Israel needed to be liberated from slavery in order to serve Him and be a light to the nations. If we fail to do to recognize this and the importance of this, we'll fail to see the meaning of the Exodus. Let my son go. Let my people go. God honors and blesses nations that give free reign to the covenant law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. The prophet Isaiah gives us this assurance, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you will succeed, and you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servant, and their righteousness is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, in the last 30 seconds, you may think that I've expertly avoided the foreskin. Well, Moses is reminded on his way that judgment begins with us. So, yes, we have a calling to speak to the pharaohs, but judgment begins with us. One of Moses' sons was not circumcised. We cannot go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the righteous law of God and expect success if we ourselves are not committed to obedience to God's covenant word in our own family. Are you baptized? Do you come to the Lord's table? We can't be effective there unless we are faithful in our families. God has always reserved the right, friends, and hear me, to judge, indeed to kill, any man who does not respect the sign of his covenant. Paul himself reminds us of that when he tells us about the Lord's table. He says that some of you have died and are sick because you despise the Lord's table, the covenant of God. The sign of the covenant needed to be upon Moses' family. He needed to walk in obedience to be effective, and so must we. 
We haven't got time to delve into what was some, clearly some marital tension there over this issue. But in our families, we have to be faithful. We have two covenant signs, baptism, the Lord's table. Let's get right with the Lord now at His table so that we can confront our rebellious culture with the gospel of liberty and be sent out in power to speak His word. Amen.